Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Movie Go Round, the film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme, Netflix Roulette. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to Movie Go Round, your source for film discussions every single week on rotating themes. Again, this week's theme is Netflix Roulette. That means we all spun the wheel and then we pick between the three of those based on what Netflix will randomly give us. My name is Brett Stewart. Joining me, as always, my excellent, superb co-host, David Luzader. How are you doing? I am doing just fine. Keeping, uh, keeping on, keeping on. Hope everyone out there in Radio Land is having a good day. We're gonna have weathers on the nines, and uh, we're just gonna keep rolling on into some Stevie Nicks after that. You Wait, what am do I doing? That. Where am I? You could, you could be like the voice on the radio on Groundhog Day. I, I am. I, I went to school for broadcast journalism, so it's not That's out true. of the realm of possibility for my life. Didn't you go to like the Walter Cronkite School of Broadcast Journalism? Walter Cronkite School yeah. of Broadcast Journalism. Wow. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, I was looking at that when I was looking at J School. Uh, and joining us as well, Nicole Davis, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. I don't have that sexy sounding bronchial infection rasp that it sounds like David has, but I'm doing okay. It's that time of year, you know, it really is. We're recording this February 15th, the day after Valentine's Day, and what better way to spend the week of Valentine's Day than watching a family, fun, romantic film, Goodfellas, that was... So, actually, first of all, let's just point out that for once we got a critically acclaimed Academy Award-winning film on Netflix Roulette. Who would have thought? Yeah, that seems that... <laughs> seems pretty unlikely though when i was looking this film up on netflix like it just was reminded me there is some really good stuff on netflix and people complain all the time like oh there's not like new stuff blah blah, blah. but there's like a lot of good movies on netflix yeah absolutely yeah, and uh this is one of them i, I think yeah it's just a tricky algorithm not everything will will come up for you sometimes you got to go hunting for it very true Exactly. Well, you can go hunting for this. It's still on Netflix and has been forever, so I'm sure it'll be there when this episode comes out. Goodfellas came out in 1990. It's a Martin Scorsese film. This gritty kinetic adaptation of Nicholas Pileggi's best-selling Wise Guy is the true-life account of mobster and FBI informant Henry Hill. Set to the true-the-period rock soundtrack, the story details the rise and fall of Hill, a half-Irish, half-Sicilian New York kid who grows up idealizing the wise guys in his impoverished Brooklyn neighborhood before becoming one himself. So, this was originally called Wise Guys, which was, or Wise Guy, which was going to be the name of the film, and then Scorsese decided to call it Goodfellas. I think that was a smart move. It's a better name. Yeah, by far. And I mean, you know, Wise Guys has that whole thing. Now, oh, you're a wise guy, are you? <laughs> and I know that's kind of like, that's kind of the connotation that they sort of like use it in as well um, within like the story. But Goodfellas just has, and the way they explain it, you know, like, oh, if, you know, you're one of us. You're a good fella. Like that just, I think that sets the tone of the story a lot more. Absolutely. And one of the ways they kind of explain that in the film is, you know, the good fella is your, your, brother's cousin-in-law he's a good fella right you can trust yeah. danny he's gonna get done what you need him to get done he's got the connection and this movie has that in spades where it's one of the most it was quoted as one of being one of the most honest portrayals of of crime in a film in the sense that like when you look at these italian mobsters and their weird familial like hierarchies it feels so authentic. Like the movie feels lived in. And that's what I love about this movie. Yeah. We talked last week on the miracle of Morgan's Creek, where we talked about um, how sets like back in the day would do a lot to, you know, they would look like uh, they were stage sets essentially. And we complimented that movie for making the world feel lived in. And there was just shots in here where like, you're following them going down like these narrow hallways. So that, like are littered with people or like the houses that are overcrowded as they're moving from room to room. And it does feel like, you know, you are in and around all of these people. Yeah. There's this amazing unbroken take where they follow 
uh, they follow Henry and his his then girlfriend uh, through the basement mm-hmm. of a Love club. That shot, yeah. And it's just beautiful as they make their way through the kitchen and around, and they meet like twelve different people, and they all say, "Hey, how are you?" you know. So. Oh my gosh! Yeah, absolutely. And there's so much of like casual banter in this movie where it's just like De Niro walking into a bar and having like seven different conversations in the space of 30 seconds. And all of mm-hmm. that feels so natural. And I think part of that is because they really have the the all-star of the all-star cast of typecast mobsters. Uh from Robert De Niro <laughs> yep. to Joe Pesci to Paul Sorvino. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um and Frank Vincent, if if you've seen a movie with mafia guys, you have seen this cast before. Yes, uh, and I actually think it's arguably one of De Niro's best mobster performances, and that's something I wanted to talk a bit about because this is like his ultimate typecast. Like he's mm-hmm. done so much mobster movies. Like I think there's like eighteen or nineteen of them when I looked it up. Everything from like The Untouchables to that one Spike Lee movie to like all sorts of stuff. Um, I'm sorry, not Spike Lee, the Scorsese movie that came out like five years ago to the new one coming out next year. That's also a mobster movie starring Robert De Niro, <laughs> like and featuring Ray Romano, and, featuring and Ray Romano. So like <laughs> the Irishman, He's Italian, the a Netflix original <laughs> it's going to be, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess like he is the is he the ultimate mobster actor? Uh, yes. The Godfather, of course, that's another one. Godfather. Um, I would say he created the stereotype that is himself, <laughs> if that makes sense. Well, there's that, and there's like Al Pacino and The Godfather. Mm-hmm. Uh, Al Pacino so, also in the upcoming played... Irishman movie, <laughs> playing a mobster. Yeah, <laughs> although Pacino's played cops too many times to really be typecast as a mobster anymore, I suppose. Absolutely, yeah. and you know, there's like there's that De Niro face that we all know now, where I just say the words De Niro face, and you can picture it with the squinty eyes and like the, the kind <laughs> the of like elongated up mouth. top lip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think there's just so much now. Uh, there is the joke of Robert Downey or Robert Downey Jr. Robert <laughs> De Niro's gangster, um, but you forget and you watch like a movie like this, and it's like there's a reason that he is known as that role because he was so good in it. Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, the scene that you mentioned in our Slack earlier in the pre-show, David, where he is walking in and introduced. So our title character, or not our title character, our main character, arguably, who is... Um, our title character, Jimmy Goodfellow. <laughs> uh, Henry Hill. Uh, Henry Hill, when he's young, a teenager, and he's starting to get into this racket, you know, idolizes, you know, uh, Jimmy Conway, who is Robert De Niro, Jimmy the Gent. Uh, because he is the epitome of cool, right? He is a guy that, if he needs a car, 15 different car keys show up, and he has 20 different pads he can crash at at night, and he walks into a room and hands everybody a 20 or a 100, and everybody wants to be him, and life is not hard. And when that moment happens and De Niro is introduced, it is like the coolest De Niro has ever been, right? Like, he's so suave. Mm -hmm. What I love... Uh, also about his performance in this movie is you kind of forget that him and Henry Hill, you know, they're so integrated into this life that they are not, um, they are not like true mobsters, you know, like, cause they, there's this whole thing about Joe Pesci getting made cause Joe Pesci's like true Italian. So he can be like really into the inner circle of the family and Robert De Niro and Henry Hill, um, played by Ray Liotta, like they can't ever be that. And kind of when that falls apart, Robert De Niro has this really emotional response to it um, that is just really well acted and kind of like, kind of caught me off guard that this like guy who had been so slick, but also so stoic and, you know, not afraid to, to mess a guy up uh, is suddenly like emotional. And it didn't feel like weird it felt like i really i get it i i connect with that yeah in fact our three main characters arguably uh tommy devito played by joe pesci or pesci and it, first of all what is that never really known it's joe pesci that's pesci. what i thought pesci um and then uh henry hill and robert de niro as james conway 
Uh, these are essentially our three main characters, and all of them devolve into madness. Um, this is very much the Wolf of Wall Street, men, you know, like trope that Wolf of Wall Street got this from, where it's like, I started off in my meager beginnings, and I beat the man, and I became the man, and I became so popular, I got taken down by the man. Um, and that's what this movie really is, because you have these characters who are so endearing in the beginning, and then... Tommy goes absolutely insane. He just starts killing people like left and right. Like mm. the reason that he ultimately gets killed because as David was mentioning, he is told he's going to get made, made a part of like a full initiative, uh, initiate of this, you know, family essentially. And they kill him because they're getting he's retribution insane. for like the fifth person back that he killed. Uh, mm. Like, um, and in addition to that, you have Henry Hill, who devolves into madness with drugs, and then you have James Conway, who devolves into killing everybody he knows. Like, all of just his to, partners... Just to save some money. Right, that yeah, he deems unsafe. He's paranoid about getting exposed for the Lufthansa heist. Exactly, and he starts killing everybody. And then he gets increasingly, you know, paranoid. So, all three of these guys who start off as really cool... Like I dare, I dare even say endearing mobsters <laughs> go insane. Yeah, that's 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 the life. Sometimes the life will do that to you. And one thing about the life is that it is in an episodic format of sorts in this film, uh, and there's not really a central conflict or villain. This is something David mentions in our docket, and that's very much the case. You have you have like really early. Um, Henry Hill, then you have teenager Henry Hill, then you have adult Henry Hill wooing his wife, then you have adult angry married Henry Hill, and then finally you have I'm turning in my friends to the FBI Henry Hill. And those are all like vignettes, like they're not done in a typical narrative. Yeah, I, I was thinking of this movie versus something like um, The Departed. You know, which there's this whole thing about two guys, one guy infiltrating the cops, one guy infiltrating the mob, and them kind of like working up till their like big showdown in the end. And there was no, there was no one that uh, Ray Liotta had to kill at the end to save his life. There was uh, no like police officer who like was hounding them down. Like he gets he gets arrested a couple of times, but there's no like that you know that one detective who would in this day and age be played by Michael Shannon like. I've got my eyes on you, you know, I'm like Ethan Hawke and Lord of War, a previous film of ours. Exactly. Yeah. They're like, that character doesn't exist in this movie. And I think that's for the better, but also can like, you get sort of near the end and you're like, Oh, I've just been watching someone telling some stories about their life. Right. Because it is revealed that as Henry Hill is narrating the story, he's essentially narrating it to a jury <laughs> uh, because what happened to Henry Hill, and this is all a true story is that he gave up um, one of his early, you know, mentors, Polly Cicero. And he also gave up James Conway. And I would argue that they kind of, I don't want to say they become the, the, the villains, but it's becomes very clear in the last half hour of the movie that James Conway really wants to kill Henry and his wife. So mm. really there's no option but to turn him in for Henry at the end. Mm. And I really like how Blase the uh the the witness protection guy is about whether or not the wife goes into it. He's like, right. I don't I don't really care about you, but <laughs> if you don't go you know, they're probably going to kill you. Right. And your kids. Yeah. Like, they'll use you to get to him. Absolutely. Which, as time would prove, um, wouldn't really have been necessary because that guy could not keep his mouth shut. Yes, yes. And it actually, for those who decide to listen to our podcast without watching the films or have not seen the film, essentially, you know, Henry gets sloppy in his in his his later years of being a mobster you know he starts trusting people he shouldn't he starts using phone lines he shouldn't he starts um you know leaving tracks that he previously hadn't left and he previously had championed himself on not leaving and that ultimately leads to the fbi tailing him and the police tailing him at the end and ultimately giving him the option to enter witness protection if he ratted out his two colleagues which he does well um i mean the number one problem is he gets greedy 
he decides to start dealing drugs on the side, which, you know, the head guy, Polly, doesn't doesn't want him to do. But he also doesn't care because Polly's getting paid, right? I think they kind of mentioned I mean, like, he doesn't want him to do it, but as long as Polly's getting paid, he's not going to stop him. And there's a very, like, sad scene to me. It's, like, weirdly sad, but, like... So he goes to Polly when the FBI's on his tail, and this has all hit the fan. And keep in mind, Polly is, like, even before Jimmy, even before James Conway, you know, Polly is the person who takes on, like, his father figure role and, like, brings him into the mob. So there's, like, a deep, lifelong connection between these two, and Polly's just done with him. Polly gives him 3100 bucks or something like that and just says, this is it. I'm turning my back on you. We're done. And frankly, that's kinder than what Jimmy tries to do. Because Jimmy well, tries to kill his wife, lure, lure her into a room with free dresses, um, which fortunately she's smart enough to walk away from. And, yeah. <laughs> and then in addition to that, he tries to send Henry down to Florida to kill somebody for him with one of the other mobsters when most assuredly that mobster is going to kill him down there. That's the reason they're going down there. And obviously he doesn't mm-hmm. go. He goes to the FBI instead. So yeah, his colleagues really turn on him in the end. <sighs> yes, they do. And you like, I don't feel bad for Polly cause obviously he's not like a great guy, but like, you know, he gave him the money. He, he turned his, he was like, Hey, go off. I don't care. But yeah, you know, he Ray, or Henry Hill kind of knew like, if I really want to get what I want, I gotta take down the guy at the top. Right, exactly. Um, I've been I've recently been watching Better Call Saul. Have you, either of you seen this? No. The first couple episodes. Well, it's really interesting, and there's a whole storyline about um, a guy. Uh, you might remember Tuco if you saw Breaking Bad. Um, yeah, Tuco yeah. is a really intense, over the top drug dealer. And his one of his colleagues decides to start dealing drugs on the side, which is different from Tuco's business, and that creates the same like distrust between the two of the colleague not wanting his boss to find out that he is a side gig. Anyway, very interesting. Right. Um, a which modern- one of us? Which one of us is dealing drugs on the side of this podcast? <laughs> uh, thing that's happening. I vote Nicole. Who's Does using the RSS Zyrtec feed count? for ill? Yes, Zyrtec counts. I, I mean, I have to admit, I take like four different pills a day, but I'm also 45 years old with several chronic health conditions. <laughs> you peddling? You peddling that tech? <laughs> I am. I'm peddling the big Z. <laughs> well, uh, let's talk about Joe Pesci. I I put in our docket that I love Joe Pesci. I love him and everything he's in. I find him absolutely endearing, and I don't see him as anyone else besides his character in Lethal Weapon. Uh, that's I all Joe I see Pesci. him as. Ooh, I really don't like. I'm just Joe gonna Pesci let this go for a second. You don't like Joe Pesci? Oh, <laughs> I don't. I okay, let's have it out. Why don't just... Why don't you like Joe Pesci? He's like the epitome, or at least let Let me say this: I know nothing about the man personally. He's could yeah, be the neither do guy I. in the world. But the roles he chooses to play are the short guy who has to overcompensate by drawing attention to himself in some obnoxious way, whether it be in a psychotic <laughs> obnoxious way or just obnoxious, obnoxious way. All a lethal so, weapon. <laughs> usually with a motor mouth, uh, yes. his characters come with. And it's just, I, I don't know, I just find it annoying. I also find it really, really odd casting because he and Henry are supposed to be really close in age. He's, you know, like maybe a few years older than Henry. Mm-hmm. And when they meet as kids, it's like they look yeah. pretty, pretty close. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Robert Niro was also ten years older than them, um, and I love that. Like when they see him, like as a kid, and he's like the adult looks the exact same as when they're both adults like you know there's hair a little bit to be entirely fair we we did share around a photo of de niro and the irishman in our slack earlier today and he still kind of looks the same yeah well like they they gray up his hair towards the end and i like them doing that but you know we're supposed to believe that we're seeing ray liotta as 21 and then like into his like 30s and 40s he looks like the exact same like nah man (laughs) Ray Liotta's got the face of a 45-year-old guy. <laughs> Maybe he had that at 21. I don't know. But that kid did not look 21 to me. 
no, no, he didn't. And neither does his wife. Um, And his wife, played by... Lorraine Bracco. Yep. Was nominated. And and first of all... Well, well, okay, well, the Oscars... Let's just play the Oscars v. Nicole on this, because both (laughs) Joe Pesci and her were nominated for Oscars in Best Supporting Actor and Actress's Roles, which... Joe Pesci won. Uh, there is a, yep. there are several Oscar wins in this movie and a number of nominations. So much so that when it came out, it was lauded as one of the best films of the year. Um, uh, but do you know what? Uh, do you know what Pesci's Oscar acceptance speech was? What? It's my privilege. Thank you. <laughs> Beautiful. He, was, he has the sixth. He has the sixth shortest uh, in the Academy's history. The that's, sixth that's shortest. Not the it's shortest. not even six words. No. Um, let's see. Wait, the shortest seven speeches are "Thank You," made by Patty Duke in 1963 when she won Best Supporting Actress. "Thank You," made by someone else uh, when he won Best Documentary for The Cove. Uh, a few of them said "Thank You Very Much," and there's one that said "Thank You, Thank You, Thank You Very Much Indeed." Was all Alfred Hitchcock said when he won his honorary Oscar in 1968, putting him one letter longer than Pesci. So what you're saying is that... Oh, we're going by letters. Okay, not words. So what you're saying is the next person to win just has to say, thanks. Thanks. Yeah, if you want, if you want the shortest, you just have to say thanks. And then or we just, just come up to the mic and, like, wave. Yeah, someone just gives, like, a nod. Um, if you can find a way to vocalize the thumbs up emoji, I think, like, that'll right. also be acceptable. Just I feel like if... Sign language. Yeah. You know. If that awful movie that I've been bagging on for the last, like three weeks um something something on a train with clint eastwood and a bunch of people that were actually there oh yeah. if he was to win best best director for that he would just get up there and be like thanks and then get off so maybe movie maybe he can break it look i'm just gonna call it right now you know what movie we're gonna have to watch because it's on netflix now Uh, what i'm not even actually i'm not even gonna say it i'm gonna let our audience do the pain to us (laughs) but it is an animated film that's all i'm gonna say Oh, no. You know no, don't give him anyway, ideas. Don't, let's, don't do let's it. Let's talk about don't Joe Pesci in this movie. No. Uh, Joe Pesci is hard to swallow at times. But at times, I mean, how the fact they didn't kill him earlier is surprising yeah. to me. <laughs> no, uh, how does he last he this long? Yeah, yeah he's, he's, like, a, he's a liability. And like he starts, like he shoots up that one kid for zero reason. And like that kid had to have been connected in some way. And keep in mind, then later kills the kid. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, he, he kills him. Like, that kid had to be, like, somebody's nephew or something. Or I guess he could have been, like, Ray Liotta and just, like, a random kid. But, oh, God, he would have, like, he would have gotten them caught for much worse stuff much earlier, it feels like. Well, I mean, that kid was Spider, played by Michael Imperioli, who's been in, like, a million oh, yeah. Italian-American-themed films. Yeah, and you just feel so bad for him because he has this one little moment where he's like, I'm going to stand up for myself. And that results in getting shot by Joe Pesci. Oh, yeah. He played Christopher Moltisanti on The Sopranos for eight years. Oh, yeah. Uh, several of these guys all appear on The uh, Sopranos in one way or, or another, including Lorraine Bracco, who played, <laughs> I think, his psychiatrist. The psychi- yeah. Yeah. The therapist. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I absolutely understand why joe pesci can be hard to swallow i think i just find him i think it's part nostalgia for me i think it's part of the fact that i grew up with some of his antics and i love them in his movies um and i just find his characters ridiculously fun um like every single time he's like i'm just gonna kill a random person i'm like yeah make this more interesting kill the bartender like or not the bartender kill the guy calling you a shoe shiner like do it. Make this movie more, like like push this movie over the edge, Joe Pesci. Because one of the r- most ridiculous exchanges in the entire movie is when a long, a long time mobster in the mobbing industry, uh, who has a different crew and a different family, um, starts making fun of Joe Pesci about how he used to be a shoeshine boy and like, oh, go get your shoeshine box boy. And Joe Pesci obviously finds this demeaning and literally ends up killing the guy, driving out, out of the state, burying the guy. 
and then having to go back six months later because they're building condominiums on top yep. of where the guy's body is and they don't want to find they don't want people to find him and all of that is like yes just keep doing this make this movie more no. ridiculous uh so that actually that's like one moment that kind of took me out of the movie a little bit and i'm sure if i had uh been alive i mean, I was i was alive but i was two years old when this movie came out if i had been like <laughs> of the similar age and like, you know, was it used to movies as they were at the time, but you know, the blood in this is all bright red and, and uh, very fake. And like when, uh, you know, he stabs him a couple times, that's really like, Oh, that's really visceral and really, yeah. then like they walk up and shoot him and there's no, uh, like the guy in the trunk and there's no like blood, like there's no bullet holes or anything. Oh, well, there's like, blood. I mean, I mean they, but they got him wrapped up in a sheet. Yeah, but like you don't see like there's not any suddenly like new bullet holes or anything. Like it just, I don't know. It it felt very like movie fake to me in that moment, mm-hmm. which was a little disappointing. Which surprisingly, well, I can tell you when this came out, it mm-hmm. was kind of infamous for the level of violence in it and how visceral it so, was. So quaint now. It is quaint. In <laughs> fact, you know, I was about to to say that uh, Scorsese actually had to cut. 10 frames out of the film in order to get an R rating. Uh, yeah, it was going to yeah. be NC-17. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's, it is so ridiculously quaint. It, it could have been rated R alone just for the... Cursing? The, no, well, yeah, that too, but... And the, the hard R... The hard R um, that uh, Henry get yeah, by that Wolf's girlfriend. Yeah, see, that was, like, that was real and hard that to watch. Real. And, yeah, that that part was a little difficult to yeah that uh, was uncomfortable to deal with um i think joe pesci getting shot in the head and seeing his head explode was uncomfortable yeah, uh, yeah so <laughs> there yeah, are moments I, I, of I, discomfort in this movie but yeah I'm in the grand gonna, scheme yeah. of thing things you can probably find this airing now on fox like it's <laughs> um yeah it's much more quaint oh, nice. than our modern mobster movie and they shoot him in the face so they can't. His mother can't have an open casket funeral. His mother, uh, by the way, played I was just say my, this. Yep. yeah Martin Scorsese's mother. Really? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. Which, I mean, they have, the, they have the same glasses, so it makes sense. <laughs> uh, yeah, and Catherine then Scorsese. let's also talk about um, the famous shot in the diner. Now, which shot are we talking yeah. about, Nicole? Yeah, I was a little okay. This. Unsure about that. <laughs> It's fairly near the end. Uh, Henry knows that Frank is, or Henry's about to to confirm that Frank wants to to whack him. That not Frank mm-hmm. wants to whack. That Jimmy wants to Jimmy whack wants him. To, oh yeah, he goes when they to meet, meet in Jimmy diner. in the diner. They sit in a booth in front of a window, and it's subtle, but the camera pushes in closer. Uh, to the table while someone's pulling the focus back. So the background behind them gets bigger as they oh, start talking and really? he's making this realization that Jimmy wants to kill him. So that's called a Zolly shot. Um, it is a zoom shot on a dolly. Uh, they are awesome. Uh, most famous one I can think of that people would know would be like Lord of the Rings when the Nazgul are coming and it kind of gives you this like it gives a nice compressed feeling to the shot um, yeah that is a that, that now that you mentioned that I, I remember that was a good yeah good it's shot. much it's much more commonly used now when people are making some horrible realization, realization yeah right their face looks the same size but the background suddenly zooms in and gets bigger and huh. just <gasps> you know kind of thing wow but this is something that Scorsese and oh god who was the cameraman on this one this uh, was great question uh, no idea somebody famous <laughs> hold on hold on hold on this there, cr- oh my god this cast list is a million miles long and half the people are named Frank or Tony yes. uh, no, um, they're all named Peter or Paul Peter or Paul okay. and their wives the Marie photography, Michael Balhaus did this so Michael Balhaus I mean, it's beautiful. Oh, I think it might have been The Departed. Invention. The Departed, okay. Well, I think Yeah, that- he did a bunch of stuff with Scorsese. He did The Color of Money, The Last Temptation of Christ, The Age of Innocence, Gangs of New York. You know what's funny? When I mentioned The Departed earlier, I 100% forgot that it was also a Scorsese movie. Oh, yes. It is. It absolutely is. Uh, and to, to go briefly you know, back to the scene, there's a... 
there's like a heartbreaking nature to it in a way, like in a weird way. Like, like, yes, these are horrible guys, but at the same time, you've seen them go through life together and you've seen one of them be a mentor to the other and you've seen them look out for one another. And he's and there and there's something so sinister about it. Right. Because one thing that's crazy about like mobster, I want to kill you stuff is this is almost this is a trope at this point. And maybe this film even helped pioneer the trope. It's like, hey, we're laughing, we're having fun, let's go get coffee, you're dead. Like, and that happens in, like, every mobster movie. It happens, like, ten times in this movie. Like, literally, they try to go and get coffee with a guy and kill him in a car. Um, and it's happening in that scene. They're being so friendly, right. and they're and they're being best buds, and Jimmy just wants him dead, because he, he, he's no, yeah. he knows that his best out is to snitch on him. Well, well that... He... Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Well, I think that shows the difference in the um, the, the kind of people that, you know, like that Jimmy and Polly are. Like, Jimmy is a guy who has had to, you know, always scrap his way in. He doesn't really have loyalties because he's all to himself. Where, like, Polly being security at the top and being in the family, you know, he does have this more sense of loyalty and family. And when one of his guys comes to him and is like, you know, I'm, I'm trouble. And he's like, well, look, I can help you, but you're out. For Jimmy, it's like, I'm just going to kill you because you're now a problem for me. In fact, right. the majority of the cast gets killed by Jimmy at the end after the after the major heist. Yep. Well, yeah, he says that as Henry says that as part of the voiceover is, you know, death doesn't come from a stranger. It comes in, you know, with smiles from a friend. So, absolutely. It's just He's, he sounds heartbroken about it. And it's just like, you know, you know what you're getting into. Does anyone else have an issue in movies when they're like, in movies, they tell you it's like this, but it's not really like that. I'm like, but we're watching a movie. <laughs> no, right? I know. It's exactly like what movies are like in the movie that's talking about the movies. Yeah, <laughs> I feel this you. This one's like a little bit different because it's supposed to be like a real life story. But, you know, whenever it's like in a TV show, it's like, well, it's, you know. It, it when you shoot someone, it's not like how it is in TV, and then it proceeds to be exactly like how it is on TV <laughs> because it's TV. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and one of the people that gets killed in that crazy like, and by the way, I have to laud Jimmy because not only does he like kill everyone that he's friends with and works with him, but he also kills them in really over the top ways, including hanging one of his buds in a mobile meat locker. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh what is this fellow's name in real life again? That's uh, Frank. Uh <laughs> it's Frank something playing Frankie uh, Carbone. Frank, Frank Severo. Frank Severo, uh Permy McPerm face, better known as the pervy brother in law from the wedding singer. That's where I know him from. And I've uh never seen that movie. Oh, you gotta watch it, it's great. Uh but Is it a perm? I mean I had, I thought it was just some hair? sort of like yeah, I mean, there's no Sicily way that's is, Sicily's maybe a hundred miles from Tunisia. I'm thinking it's maybe a little bit of like a Sicilian fro action going on. Though, maybe. Uh, I mean, I'm looking at him in other movies. He seems like he has some. Oh nope, nope. Yeah, I think it might just be how his hair is. He's got a little bit of a fro. He must just straighten it these days, I guess. Huh. Well, in any case, he ends up dead in a mobile meat locker, uh, <laughs> yeah, and. Yes. And uh, that is, and that's a quick succession of like five people you know in the movie just getting killed by Jimmy, um, yeah. and having their stories just end abruptly right there. Um, and someone else that gets killed in this movie abruptly ended is Samuel Jackson, which I did not know yes. was in the movie. Yeah. And keep in mind that this is a movie that has no issue dropping hard R and words, and has like one person of color? Question mark. I think yeah. two, I think they think two show up. There's the doctor and then Samuel L. Jackson. Oh, and yes. Samuel L. Jackson, like, unless you are watching, and like, I guess I did, I just was like, oh hey, like I must have like looked at the exact right time because you don't really see his face. He's really no. skinny, um, which like, he does not look like the Samuel L. Jackson that we're kind of all used to now. Uh, yeah, he just it's it's like it's real quick. It's mostly from the back, or you're distracted by the fact that he's wearing like underoos. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, Samuel Jackson is in this movie. And another person yeah. that gets angrily and abruptly killed in a haphazard by way Joe by Tommy. Pesci. 
Yeah, by Joe Pesci. So, uh, so this is like pre-Tarantino Samuel Jackson, before his entire film career was bad Star Wars movies and Tarantino movies, right? This was before even uh, his big breakthrough was Jungle Fever, and that was 1991. So this was mm, right yeah. before he, he broke out. Yeah, okay. Pulp Fiction was 94. So he... Okay, so that started the um, my entire life is devoted to Quentin Tarantino thing. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Pulp Fiction, even like, it's really treasured now, but at the time that it came out, it wasn't uh, the the biggest known quantity. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't at the exact moment, the film that uh, changed college kids forever. Uh, no, yeah, it was. <laughs> oh, was it? <laughs> yeah, it was. Huh. It was, I mean, it was an art house. Okay, yeah, I guess that's what but, I'm trying more to say. It was more art but house. But it was, it, in the art house circuit, it was yeah. And because college kids had already started to revere Reservoir Dogs, they were primed for when it hit. Oh, and it also started the decade-long creepy fascination with Uma Thurman that unrolls continuing to this week. Uh (laughs) Oh, and don't forget, too, Samuel Jackson, 1993 in Jurassic Park. Hold on, hold on to your butts. Hold on to your butts. Oh my god, I'm learning so much about Sam tonight. Uh, But yeah, he's in the movie. He gets abruptly killed. That's a shame. Let's talk about the Simpsons. Uh, The Simpsons. I gotta point out how I gotta point out how insane it is that Samuel Jackson goes from 1990 this movie. Like, go look at him in this movie, 1990 to 1999, The Phantom Menace. Like, the transformation that happens in that man in nine years is bananas. <laughs> that is so true. That is so true. I recently just watched the prequels, and um, he is in them. <laughs> That's all I have to say that about is. them. That he, he is, is in them. He, he, is, he is the actor of color that George Lucas decided to put in the movie. Um, yeah, Mace Windu cleaner. Yes. <laughs> uh, hey, Jar Jar Binks was almost uh, played by... He um, was played by Mike, a person of color. Was almost played by Michael Jack or not? Uh, yeah, Michael Jackson. Oh, that would oh. have been no, he wasn't Michael. Michael, Michael Jackson was Michael Jackson was too famous. Um, that he, they that, no, this is like this is all true. That they knew that it was you know he wanted to do the CGI character and didn't want you know they were people would freak out like why are you hiding Michael Jackson behind the CGI character. Uh, so they, you know, they went another direction with it entirely. So everybody that's listening right now, uh, movie go round at tiltingwindmillstudios.com. Let us know, would Jar Jar be as hated as he is today if he was Michael Jackson? Oh, probably twice as much. Probably twice as much. Um, so the court case involving the Simpsons, essentially aforementioned, um, questionable perm head has been, yes, has been suing the Simpsons creators. Um, for using his likeness as their, like, de facto mobster for the last X amount of years. Uh, the, the character Frankie Carbone, or Carboni, who has been around f- since the 90s, um, first appeared on the show in 1991. Uh, and, or no, Frankie Carboni is this character in the movie, sorry. The character right. that, that he's suing them in The Simpsons about is named Louie. Uh, and Louie has been a staple of the Simpsons and Big Fat Tony's mob for quite some time. And yeah, he's been suing them for the last few years. Uh, and the court is now just, just dismissing him that they're like, yeah, you know, they took elements, but it contains significant transformative content other than your likeness. Like, it's obviously you are the jumping off point, but it is not you. Why? Right. Like, why? Why? Well, I mean, if if you are at a point in popular culture where The Simpsons or Family Guy or South Park, if they want to make fun of you, why do you got to sue them? Like, it's all for the money. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, look at if South Park. South Park would get sued every week if everyone was like this guy. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's definitely based on his character from this movie. No question. Yeah. Uh, apparently, oh, one of the Simpsons writers lived next door to him during the late 1980s. Uh, so that that uh, that's really really funny. Uh, but man, Louis is such a such a great character. There's actually a great episode where Bart uh, ends up as their bartender. He becomes the yes. which, which is very heavily influenced by this movie. Um, if you watch it, it's really funny. Uh, and actually, after like watching this movie, I've, I'm, I at first thought that. 
Louis was supposed to be Joe Pesci's character, but it really does look more like uh, Frank Severo, who should just lean into it. Go to Simpsons cons. People would pay money to have him sign pictures of Louis. <laughs> it's true. It's absolutely true. Uh, and a couple other random things I wanted to note. Uh, this movie, when it came out, the amount of F-bombs in this movie, they are excessive for the time. Over 300 F-bombs in the Two movie. Two per minute. Two per minute. And <laughs> almost all of them were improvised. Not a lot of them were in the script. Uh, but they just decided to keep them, which I think is fantastic over uh, half of them spoken by joe pesci whose mother after seeing the movie thought it was great but asked if he if he had to curse so much oh that's such a mom thing that is such mm. a mom thing oh I love i'm so it. proud of you honey you but did have you have to, to curse, curse so, much? so much uh it's, and then yeah. also in I addition show this to your grandmother yeah exactly <laughs> what a, i can't well, Peggy was going to see this movie, but I can't have I can't tell Peggy to see this movie. Yeah. Yeah. And then also uh there was some potential interaction between people who played these characters and the real men. The, this has never been confirmed, but it's it's been long rumored I think maybe by either the production staff or by De Niro himself that the real Jimmy called him and was elated that he was playing him and gave him tips for how to play him. And then Scorsese was like, no, that didn't happen. Um, but uh, because keep in mind, one of the interesting things about this movie is, is it has a title card at the end that says like, uh, oh, uh, Henry still in witness protection. And um, until this movie came out, until this movie yeah. came out. Yeah. And then he went back into a crippling drug addiction before he eventually got back in the witness protection after getting arrested again. Um, but He's in witness protection, and uh, Jimmy is in prison to the tune of, like, 20-plus years. He ended up dying in the early 2000s. And um, also, Polly had died the year after this movie came out. Right. So In prison. In prison. Yep. Right. So a lot of these guys were, like, still alive um, and accessible in some capacity. In fact, I believe Henry Hill was paid for this movie. I well, I mean, I believe it because it's based on his yeah. book. I believe, I believe Henry Hill was paid like four hundred fifty thousand dollars, which probably was mostly spent on cocaine. <laughs> so entirely, but as an average schnook, what is it? It's not even schmuck. It's like schnook. Schnook, yeah. It's a schnook. Uh, okay, first of all, let's let's have a let's have a a, a breakdown of the final scene of this movie. <laughs> I just want to talk about the final um, scene of this movie going into the protection? credits. Yes, he's in witness yeah. protection. He's an average schnook. That's the word he has decided to use. And he is getting the newspaper. He breaks the fourth wall and stares at the camera, gives this really disgusted look at his mundane, average life, and then gives like this awkward smirk, and then goes back in while solo Sid Vicious breaks into a terrible a terrible version of Frank Sinatra's My Way. Which... That ver the fact that that did not ruin the movie uh, is amazing. Um, <laughs> it really speaks to the quality of this film. Oh my God. But for some reason, would this have been improved if when they start showing the suburbs, that Dire Straits song starts playing? And like, you know, he looks up, smirks, and that's when it breaks into like the the main part of the song. I think we're onto something here. I'm, I'm going to recut the end of this movie. I think you we are. You to be recut to Walk of Life? Yep. Walk of Life. Have you seen <laughs> Have you seen that Facebook video, that Facebook page you can like where they take see any scene from any yeah. movie and add Walk of Life to it? And it works. No, I have not. Oh, it's, it, it works is lovely. in so many movies. It works in so many <laughs> movies. Um, but in any case, the solo Sid Vicious, I want to repeat, solo Sid Vicious, not... Uh, Sex Pistols, Sid Vicious, covers my way on the end credits of this movie to horrible effect. Um, and what I love about it is that the music of the movie otherwise is quite fantastic. Like, as we said at the top of the program, this is a true-to-period rock soundtrack, right? We go from Cabana to the Rolling Stones, and it's great. And then there's that at the end of the movie. What, what? So one thing I really liked about this movie is, yeah, they, they kind of go through some different decades and they mention it, but they don't like they don't do that thing that a lot of films do, where it's like 1980 and they cut to Ray Liotta and now he's got a mullet. Uh, <laughs> that like you know style didn't really like ch change that drastically. You look at some of the characters and you're like, oh yeah, 
you know, you're, this is the 1970s. And like when it started getting into the eighties, the, the decor in their house started getting insane. Um, but they didn't like try to push it with like, now everybody's wearing neon all the time. Right. <laughs> like it, that, it, I appreciated that level of like realism. To Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Though I think oh, yeah, um, there's some communities where very little changes in terms of fashion. Yeah, the mob probably oh, being one of them. Yeah. <laughs> right. uh, and Henry, I think, does kind of get like more disheveled as the movie goes on. Um, but you're totally oh, right. Coke will do that to you. Yeah, Coke <laughs> will do that to you. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I do love the music in this movie. I love the way that it, it's presented, tying in really elegantly with what's, what's happening on screen. I think one of the coolest scenes in the movie is when they like have this long track shot of them walking into the Coca Cabana. Um, yeah. and having the Coca Cabana guys just bring them out a table and put it right there in the front. Cause keep in mind, this is when 21 year old Henry Hill is wooing his, his wife, you know, he doesn't look like he's in his twenties, but yeah. Right. It's all, it's, it's all to show the cumulative effect of how impressive this is to her that number one, they're getting in through, they don't have to wait in line at the club. They get ushered right in the door immediately to the, uh, to the back kitchens as they wend their way through the kitchens everybody greets henry they're all like hey henry how are you you know everybody knows him everybody's friendly to him all the people in the restaurant know him the owner knows him the managers know him the maitre d knows him they get a table at the front immediately as soon as they actually go into the main club uh, someone buys them a bottle of wine instantly right dom perignon they get instantly yeah. So, uh, so I actually think the character of Karen kind of they kind of drop off on her a little bit. I thought she was great in the beginning, um, but I think her character kind of just peters out. Well, one uh, thing I find in very the interesting about the film, her character, is yeah. that the movie's narrated sparsely by Henry Hill. And then mm-hmm. her narration just randomly shows up at times, Which and it's always about how turned on she is. She's like, yeah. if some man handed you a gun and told you to hide it, you'd run. But I was strangely aroused. Maybe that's not she the exact word. No, southern there at the end. I, I do <laughs> not like her voiceover at all. I think it's very flat. She's like, I had to oh, admit, yeah, she it turned it. me on. She <laughs> he stood me up. How could he do such a thing? Yeah. I mean, her, her live, her, you know, her performance in, you know, her, her regular character performance, I think is fine. I think she does a really good job, but the voiceover I think is awful. Yeah. So question, we, we take her and just as a character in general, and we just fast forward two years in, in history and just take Marissa Tomei out of my cousin Vinny and then just drop her in this movie. It'd be even better, right? Well, yeah, because you could, you could have Marissa Tomei painting a cheese sandwich and I'd watch it. (laughs) I wouldn't know what Painting a cheese sandwich. I I love it. Yeah. Now here's the thing. Uh, Another Joe Pesci vehicle. Putting paint on, or is it a sandwich? (laughs) She is painting on a canvas. So many questions. Marissa Tomei. I'm watching. Either way. Yeah, yeah, sure. Isn't she? Isn't she Aunt May now? She is. Yes. Okay. I'm, I'm weird. Not. I should not should not be attracted to Aunt May. Yet here we are. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I grew up in the time where they were still publishing the newspaper strip, and Aunt May oh. looked like she had swallowed a lemon. Oh, it is still going. She looks like eighty. That thing still exists. <laughs> oh my god! Really? Uh huh. So How does that? I don't know, but it does. <laughs> Well, I think it's safe to say that if if you're like me and you like Joe Pesci in this role, you 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 will be able to have the exact same role offered to you in the form of a lawyer in My Cousin Vinny. So never seen it. Oh, it's it's great. Um, so cry uh, me a river, buddy. Oh, that's what she was. She was <laughs> saying that in response to the uh, to, to the, the end thing. Oh, to the oh, end? No, no. Oh, no. That was, I was saying in, the, to the, in response to the end of the movie where he has to live like a schnook. I'm oh. like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cry me a river, buddy. I know, right? Uh, your life is so hard. You got into the mob and addicted to drugs. and <laughs> Right. You know, you knew what you were getting into. You knew it was all illegal. You knew 
but you treated it like you were entitled to absolutely everything you ever wanted or asked for or what have you. And all that was required in return was a little bit of loyalty and for you to look the other way once in a while. And that's it. Yeah, that's why, like, you know, these scenes where he's freaking out because someone gets shot near him. It's like, come on, man. Don't be like, I've always wanted to be a gangster and, like, get upset. (laughs) for this part. Right. And get upset when they're kicking someone to death. Like, that's what this is, buddy. Though he also has really aggressive moments in the movie. Like, there's a shot where, you know, there's a lot of shots where him and Robert De Niro are beating guys up in the back of cars. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, so this movie, um, and, and correct me if there's a, a better movie before it, because there might be. Is this like the de facto, the ultimate blueprint for the rise and fall of a crime person, of a crime person, of a criminal? Those crime um, people. Like, Have is this where we get Wolf of Wall Street from? Yeah, The Godfather, part one and part two. Oh, yeah, I guess so. Because <laughs> it's a godfather. <laughs> You're completely and utterly this right. Is, this is the more kinetic version yeah. of that. Yes. So yeah. the godfather is like, it's it's one and two, it's like, it's stately. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like an epic saga. a good way of putting it. And yeah. then there's three. Whereas this, you know, the pacing in this is amazing. It's just, especially the first half of it, it's just yeah, for moving a, right along. For a two know? and a half hour movie, like, that's still long, but I wasn't upset by it. I didn't feel the drag at any point that we feel sometimes with hour and a half long movies on this podcast. One of my favorite things in the movie is there's a really great sense of speed throughout, throughout Henry's life where you don't feel like you're spending too long in one place or too little in one place. And I think that speaks well to the pacing of the film, but there's the final scenes, not the, the last like vignette of his life is the day he gets arrested and this is the only time that we spend an elongated period of time, not only in like one period of his life, but literally one day. And there's this crazy sense of urgency for about 20 minutes of this movie where he is running all around town and he's trying to make dinner, but also deal drugs, but also sell guns, but also do drugs, but also hook up with his mistress, but also pick up his like wheelchair handicapped brother like all these things are happening while a helicopter is literally chasing him uh and it's just such you a think that would have been a clue yeah <laughs> you think maybe that maybe they were on to him right just maybe and uh, yeah and it's just a great a great like 15 or 20 minute segment because it's so uncomfortably intense all the way down to the point where he's like making dinner and like frying stuff and like putting seasoning on steaks and then runs outside brother who's in a wheelchair is just trying to make sure that sauce is done right he's just trying to make sure the sauce is done but he has to run out of the house to go sell guns uh oh yeah that's another thing he just inexplicably gets into toward the end of the movie he's just gun running i mean that's all he gets the guns for jimmy and then he's got to sell them to the to his drug contacts instead yeah and that's all part of the um like the drugs in in general like that that felt pretty realistic to me because once you start getting involved in drugs like you're gonna get involved in some other crap yeah absolutely it's a it's a crazy movie (laughs) it's a crazy crazy movie and um de niro has described it as a a quote a mob home movie so like this is what would happen if you gave a bunch of mobsters just a a home camera and just let them film their lives no 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 what they would do is they would film themselves at home inexplicably one of them would hold up a newspaper showing the date of a day when a major crime happened and like, oh, well, according to this video where I'm holding this newspaper for some reason, I couldn't possibly have whacked that guy. <laughs> I was at home. <laughs> Not going to lie, that has happened in cases before. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Well, there's a lot of whacking in this movie. There's a lot of whacking. Yes. Um, Only a body count of 10, though. Right, right. Other people, right. other people get beat up a lot. Yes, get beat up a whole lot. So... I, the last also, thing. Also, let's just let's all dwell on the fact for a second that Brett says there's a lot of whacking in this movie. <laughs> Can we break I the format of our titling and just title the episode that? Yep, a lot I, of whacking in this movie. A lot of whacking. <laughs> so yeah, I mean this. 
this is something this is where this is what Scorsese should have gotten his first best director Oscar for because he just keeps it moving 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 uh this is the year Kevin Costner won for Dances with Wolves which is I grant you a really it's a beautifully done epic it's a beautiful movie um but this is just this is like a master class in what directing. Is, what is Scorsese's first Oscar then for directing? I th- didn't didn't he win for The Departed? He I won for say. The Departed. Was that his first one though? Let's I think see. I think it was his first non-honorary one. Hmm, that actually might be true wow. now that you mentioned that. I'm like so deeply uncomforted lately by so, yeah, best director. Best, one, best director. One okay. Yeah. He's been nominated huh. a bunch of times, but well, only one win. Yeah, I, I'm so deeply uncomfortable by that role lately because I, I went down this weird rabbit hole like this week where there's a Tarantino stuff I alluded to earlier in the show going down right now with him and with Ermond, but that also dug up an old clip on him, him on Howard Stern defending Roman Polanski. And, um, yeah, don't then, hit on that rabbit hole. That'll, uh, you, you will which, not like a lot of which people. Which then in turn... I found myself watching Helen Mirren give Roman Polanski a standing ovation in like 2001 for the pianist. And I was like, Oh, I feel dirty. I don't like this. Um, they should not have given best, best director to that. Um, in any case, uh, what I wanted to ask was, does it get old with Scorsese or is it, he's so good at it that it'll keep being good because we have another one of these coming out from him next year. It's like half his career. I mean, I mean, he Wolf of Wall Street was fantastic. No, I, yeah, I, I, I mean I, more specifically like Mobster, I guess. Well, I think The Departed was a great update of the, you know, the the mobster genre, and it was you know the same director, and it felt like a completely different movie, evidenced by the fact that I forgot that it was directed by the same guy. Uh, you know, I think it's hard for like The Irishman because that's not out yet i haven't you know and i haven't seen silence but there is like a large swath of differentness in his um in his credits uh and then there's boardwalk empire which is pretty gangstery he did he he, was he involved in boardwalk he was the he was one of the producers and directed the pilot Oh, wow. The more you know. Um, Yeah, and I don't want to pigeonhole him because this is also, you know, keep in mind, this is the guy that brought you the the year before this, what, The Last Temptation, which he actually put this off to make, Um, which, let's be honest, David Bowie. Um, <laughs> I'd put off anything to work with David Bowie as Pontius Pilate. Um, but yeah, but there's also Casino. Like, that's another one. Um, well, yeah, then there's The Aviator, Hugo, uh, Wolf of Wall Street. As was Hugo was him. Holy crap! Yep, Hugo was him. That is so. The Age of Innocence. Well, Gangs of New York, though. That's like so. Like those are another two. Um, kind of. Yeah, but I think like for every one that you mention, like it's easy to also like Cape Fear is not a. Uh, yeah, you're right. I guess it's movie. just like you usually don't see a director that has so much of a niche that like every other movie is within a very specific niche. But you're right. I think he innovates on it. Right. Like I think a Gangs of New York. And I love gangs in New York, and that's a bizarre take on like gang culture in that era of like the mid nineteenth century. Isn't that's... Cameron Diaz in that movie? Yes, she is. Yeah, she is. Yeah. That's like totally different than what you'd see in something like this. So yeah, he's he's brilliant at it. I'm excited to see The Irishman. I'm excited that uh, I'm not going to have to um and wait for it. It'll just be in my Netflix queue like this. And let's just remind everybody that Martin Scorsese also directed the music video. For bad. <laughs> That's right. Really? Speaking of crime dramas. Yep. Hard hitting crime dramas. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Whatever. That's good. Well, uh, he's he's still around, and he, oh yeah, him. Oh yeah, I'm back. We're going back down the rabbit hole. Uh, he's uh, another one giving a standing ovation in 2001. Don't go down that rabbit hole, man. You'll I want to go depressed. into that and look at all the standing ovation people. No. and be like, why? Why you knew? You knew? Okay. Uh, you might as well go back and look at everybody who stood up for Aaliyah Kazan. I know. Yeah. I know. And uh, yeah. there's a great, um, like a any great person comic who stood series. up for Dustin Hoffman. Like, yeah, all of our favorite actors and actors are 
apparently very scummy people we are learning in the last there, couple, last like six there months. There is a, a great comic series called The Fade Out, which is about um, an actress who gets killed in like the 1920s, early years of Hollywood. And this guy's kind of trying to figure out what happened and starts piecing together how, uh, you know, she was basically owned by this movie studio because that's what happened back then. You were basically owned by a movie studio and how scummy and vile these people were. And, um, you know, years of abuse and, and at the very least. And there's uh, at the end of each issue, there is a story about another actress or somebody from that time period um, who suffered at the hands of movie studios from that era. Wow. Oh, yeah, that's rough. like the whole Uma Thurman thing right now. Well, I think at some point I'll, I'll end this this rabbit hole with this. At some point on the show we are going to have to face what I recently faced when attempting to rewatch Beyond the Sea. And that is that it's really hard to watch someone in a role that you used to love when you find out they're a creep. Uh, R.I.P. Beyond uh, the Sea. I no. just can't get into it anymore. Who? Beyond the Sea is Kevin a Kevin Spacey, Spacey vehicle uh, Kevin Spacey, for yeah. um, Bobby Darren. And it is literally all Kevin Spacey. Directed, produced, written, funded. And I'm yeah. like, oh, no, this isn't fun anymore. So eventually, I think that's going to come up for us. That recently came up for Dominic and I, and we had to have a whole conversation about it on the show on Silver Screens. But let's yeah, wrap it up here. Um, let's wrap today. it up. Goodfellas, is yeah. it something you guys would recommend? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, you know, if, you, if you like this genre of movie, then absolutely, it's one of the very best, if not the best. Absolutely. So. I, I, think, I think this is a... Um, I'm going to stand by The Untouchables. I think The Untouchables is still my favorite crime mobster movie. If not just for yeah. the Sean Connery. What What is the famous line in the church? Um, he brings a knife, you'll bring a gun. Yes. Yeah. That's the Chicago way. That's the Chicago way. Uh, That's how you get couple. Oh my and God, I love it. And you watch the voice of, uh, of Piglet get killed in an elevator. <laughs> <laughs> And on that note, yes, go check it out. It's on Netflix. <laughs> if you want to join us next week, we are doing Around the World. It's an international film. It's a film that David picked. David, what film is it, and why'd you pick it? It is Ong Bak, or Ong Bak, the Thai warrior. I picked it as part of my crusade to introduce yes. Brett to more and more awesome martial arts films. Yes! Uh and you know this is this is leading up towards the raid and the raid part two, uh, but we can't go there yet without going into Ang Bak territory. Yeah, we got to ramp up. We got to yeah. do like a Jean Claude Van Damme movie in there somewhere. Yeah, somewhere. Kumate. <laughs> Kumate. Kumate. <laughs> this looks so cool. I'm excited to see this. And for those, if it's still available, it's on Hulu it's on right now. Hulu. Yeah, it's it's not. It doesn't have a ton going on for its story wise. It's pretty straightforward and basic, but. Ah, oh, the fight scenes. The action in yeah. it is amazing. Fantastic. We'll follow along next week if you'd like to go ahead and do that. And then the week after that will be a future classics. Uh, where can we find everybody online? Nicole, where are you up to? Uh, you can find me curating our Facebook page at facebook.com slash moviegoroundpodcast. Uh, you can find me curating our previous podcast page, Geek Cinema Society, also on Facebook. And you can find me personally on Twitter. My handle is at your word whiz. That's Y O U R W O R D W H I Z. Very good. And what about you, David? Sorry, you can find me around the internet. Um, I'm on the Heck Yeah Comics podcast, heckyeahcomics.com. Also, the uh, Brokebot Mountain podcast. You can find both of those wherever podcasts are sold. And you can find me around the internet under the username Davluz. That is D-A-V-L-U-Z. So Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, find me there. Very good. And you can find me on BrettDavisStewart.com, on Twitter at RiversRubin, and on other shows like Silver Screens and Politics. I'm going to give a shout out to The Wild Pitch, which is uh, hosted by Derek Glasscock. Uh, he is the man who killed Geek Cinema Society, or at least I like to make fun of him about that. Uh, he was our final guest on Geek Cinema. Um, and of course, it was nothing to do with him. He's lovely. But he hosts a show called The Wild Pitch, and myself and Dominic Chikoki, my co-host on Silver Screens, were on that. And it was Dominic and I's duty to pitch uh, products or situations or stories involving randomly generated elements and those were middle earth a bookstore and david bowie and i think we really had fun with it so big shout out to him thanks for letting us be what on was that it, 
Was it an elvish bookstore run by an elf that looks like David Bowie? No, Dominic had a bookstore opening to summon David Bowie and J.R.R. Tolkien as ghosts, um, oh which was increasingly oh, elaborate. And then mine was an alternate universe in which um, David Bowie really pissed off Christopher Tolkien and ended up accidentally making Labyrinth 2. So <laughs> when he meant to make Lord of the Rings. So uh, it's it's a very complex, elaborate nonsense plot. But you can go and check that out. Shout out to Derek. Thanks for letting Dominic and I be on that. They'll do it for myself, David, and Nicole. We will see you next week with... Ong Bak. 